I don't know how your parents disciplined you, but in our home, if our actions warranted it, my brother and I received spankings. Now, I know you're saying that that's barbaric, but keep in mind, it was the 1900s. Now, my brother and I both agree that we would much rather have a spanking from our father instead of our mother, and it is not because our father was light-handed. It's just that our mother would talk to us first, then she'd start crying, then we would start crying. We would much rather just take our punishment and move on with our lives. We didn't want to feel bad as well. All of us at various times have received, well, punishment. We've all received correction because we've all done things that we know that we were not supposed to do. But how we respond to that correction shows not only our character, but also the trajectory of our future. Let me show you why on this episode of By the Verse. Thank you again for tuning in to this episode of By the Verse. This podcast is all about the Word of God, and we hope that it is a blessing to you as it enriches your understanding of Scripture. If you haven't already done so, please write a review of this podcast wherever you are listening to it. Of course, you can also write a review in Apple Podcast, and that will really help us out. So in our last episode, we walked through chapter one of the book of Judges. We saw that the process of conquering the land started out great. But over time, the people only had partial victories, and by the end of the chapter, not only have they not driven out the inhabitants of the land completely, but they have agreed to let some of them live among them. They also enslaved some of them, and by the end of the chapter, the tribe of Dan not only couldn't conquer the land that they were supposed to inherit, but they were completely run out. So the chapter mirrors the downward spiral of the entire book. This situation can't go unaddressed, and so we're going to see that God's going to address this in a very strong way right at the beginning of chapter 2. Let's hop into it now. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the people you are living, uh, that are living in this land, and you are to tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named the place Bochum and offered sacrifices to the Lord there. Now, have you ever been totally busted? I mean, you were just caught red-handed doing something that you knew you had no business doing. Well, that's exactly what happens here. Chapter 1 has not gone well. And so God has to address the situation, and we have the angel of the Lord making an appearance in this chapter. You also see the angel of the Lord later in this book in the story of Gideon and much later in the story of Samson. Of course, the angel of the Lord is a figure that appears in numerous places all throughout the Old Testament. 
And it is, uh, as I said in the introduction, it's sometimes a representation of God or representation of Christ in the Old Testament. And I particularly think that that is the case in this situation. I don't think it's the case necessarily in every situation in the Old Testament, but I do think that there are some indicators that help us understand who it is that we're dealing with. Angels often speak on behalf of God when they interact with people. They do not speak as if they are God. And that's exactly what we're going to see this angel do. But first, the angel comes to the people while the people are apparently still assembled together. The fact that the writer of Judges doesn't just tell us that the angel of the Lord appeared to the people. But he tells us the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal is significant. Gilgal is a significant place in the history of the people and certainly in this generation that was still alive. When the people crossed over the Jordan before they took Jericho, they set up camp at Gilgal. And this is uh, in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 4. I'm going to read just an excerpt here, starting at verse 19. The people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern limits of Jericho. Then Joshua set up Gilgal in the Gilgal, the 12 stones they had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, in the future... When your children ask their fathers, what is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel, cross the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. This is so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. So Joshua here does uh, what we call a memorial. He sets up memorial stones for all time so that the people will know what God did. Not only did they cross the Jordan in this particular instance, but it also mirrors them uh, crossing the Red Sea, which of course is a, uh, the great epic story of the Old Testament. This is a sign that God was delivering on his promise to give the people the promised land. So the memorial is at Gilgal. Uh, Joshua chapter 5 goes on to tell us, and we're not going to read it, but it goes on to tell us that it's at Gilgal that the people uh, circumcised themselves because the men who were born in the wilderness hadn't been circumcised in the wilderness all those 40 years. So it's at Gilgal that this happens. Well, what is uh, circumcision? Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. So Gilgal is a place where people will memorialize what God has done for them and make a commitment to God, a covenant sign of commitment to follow the Lord. 
So the fact that the angel of the Lord comes to the people from Gilgal shows us that God is going to deal with his people based on the covenant agreement that he has with them. Coming from Gilgal should be a reminder to them that, hey, wait a minute, isn't this the place that we set up those memorial stones about what God had done? Isn't this the place where we entered into a covenant agreement with God through the sign of of circumcision that we were going to be faithful to him? See, God will always deal with us based on what he has promised to us and what he has agreed to do for us. Now, we know that their covenant was based on law and our covenant as Christians is based on grace. And I am so thankful for that. But still, even now, we are people of covenant. Now, this is uh, not the time or place to really dive too deep into the covenant, but I just want you to know that this is not just a miscellaneous detail that the author is including here. This entire book is going to point back to the agreement that God has with his people and subsequently the failure of those people to follow through on their part of the agreement. And that's exactly what the angel of the Lord ultimately says when he brings up, hey, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you into this land that I swore to your fathers. And I said, I would never break my covenant. Now, are you noticing something here? The angel of the Lord is not saying, hey, God brought you out uh, of Egypt. God brought you into this land. God uh, said he would never break his promise. This angel of the Lord is not speaking on behalf of God. This angel of the Lord as speaking as if he is God. He's saying, I brought you out. He's speaking in the first person. This, this whole refrain of God bringing the people out out, God delivering them and making a covenant with them is pretty much a phrase that is used about 50 times in the Old Testament when God is rebuking his people because it's always based on the agreement that they have and the fact that the people have violated it. From God's perspective, he expects that his people will be faithful to him because he has done all these things for them. He states the things that the people have done that have specifically broken the agreement that he had with them. Number one, uh, they wanted, they, they first were not supposed to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Now, covenant basically just means an agreement, okay? It's a very strong agreement, but it, it is an agreement between groups. Obviously, these people had made an agreement with some of the inhabitants of the land because they allowed them to live among them at peace. So they had some kind of arrangement there. And then they went ahead and forced them into slavery, which was some other type of arrangement that they had with these people. And there, there were rules that went along with this. So they basically made covenants uh, with these people. And they were supposed to wipe out all of the altars that these people had, which basically means they were supposed to remove all of the worship of these gods from among the land. But we know they didn't do that. They allowed the people to live there. They allowed the people to worship uh, their own gods. And ultimately, they would end up worshiping some of these things. So God says, hey, you have not obeyed. And because you have not obeyed, in verse 
3 of chapter 2, he says, I will not drive them out before you. Now, this is very significant because if you go back in chapter one, remember we said that Judah came to a point where they they had some early victories, but then they got to a point where they said they felt like they could not drive out the Canaanites in the plain because they had superior technology. They had iron chariots. Now, after that, the other tribes, it says they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land, which is more of a willful choice not to do something. So Judas could not, okay, turned into a willful choice by the other tribes of just not doing it. And God's response is to say, okay, well, if you thought you could not, so you did not, well, then I will not. From God's perspective, it was always him being the one who was actually driving out the people. He was the one who was causing the efforts of the Israelites to be successful as long as they were obedient to follow through all the way. So Judah's sense that these men are superior technologically, they're stronger, we can't drive them out, is really just a cop-out. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of confidence in God that ultimately, if they would just try, if they would just go do their part, that God would come through for them and deliver the victory because ultimately it's God driving the people out from God's perspective, okay? So often, we only want uh, to do part of what God wants us to do. But we expect God to do 100% of everything he said he would do, right? We want to do half. We want to do 80%, but we fully expect God to do his 100%. But it doesn't work that way. I've told people on many occasions uh, over the years where I'm aware of personal, very serious personal issues in their life that you cannot expect the blessing of God, but refuse to do things God's way. See, it's 100% you doing what you can do and 100% God doing what he does. Sometimes we get away with things by grace because God loves us. And I'm so glad we live under grace. But there comes a point where if you're going to have everything that God has promised to you, you have to do it God's way. So the angel of the Lord said, hey, I'm not going to drive these people out before you, which basically means I'm not going to give you uh, victories all the time when you fight these people. These people are going to be a continual thorn in your side. They're going to be an irritant to you. They're always going to be a problem, an issue that you're going to have to deal with. It's never going to go away. Now, that's the opposite of peace. Okay, he's basically saying, you could have had peace. You could have had rest. You, you, you could have uh, avoided some of these problems that are going to keep coming up in your life. But instead, you didn't choose to follow me all the way. And I think the rest of the book illustrates that God did what he said he would do. But he goes further. He says that their gods will be a snare to you. Well, we know that a snare is a trap. And a good trap usually has bait, 
You can't bait a particular animal with something that's not appetizing to that animal. But that's what false gods do. They bait you with something that's genuinely appealing to you. But once you give yourself to it, quickly you find out that you're trapped by it. And I think that we see that absolutely in the rest of this book. So how did the people respond uh, to their spanking? Well, it says that the people lifted up their voices uh, and in verse 4, they wept. So basically, they wept loudly and ultimately they sacrificed to the Lord there. And they named that place uh, Bochum because it's it's a name that means weeping or weeper or place of weeping. So we see from their response that there was some genuine sorrow for what they had done. The question is, was there genuine repentance? And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes we come to moments in our lives where we are sorrowful for our actions and our decisions. But if we're getting really honest, sometimes we're only sorry for the consequences of those decisions and not for the decisions themselves. We might be sorry that our decision genuinely hurt someone or we genuinely hurt ourselves, but we're not necessarily unwilling to do that same thing again. Genuine repentance means we change our behavior because we change the way we think about the thing, okay? We should feel sorry, and that's good, and it's maybe great to express that sorrow in weeping. That's not wrong or problem. But it's not good enough just to feel sorry and then engage in some extra religious behavior to make ourselves feel better. There has to be genuine change of heart and genuine change in the way we see whatever it is that we did wrong. Now let's read further in the chapter, Joshua chapter 2 verse 6. Joshua sent the people away and the Israelites went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetime of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Temnah Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Now, like we said in chapter 1, the opening of the whole book says after the death of Joshua. That's really a reference to most of what happens in the book, but not necessarily a reference to every detail that happens in chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's some overlap there. So it doesn't mean all the events in these chapters happen after his death, because obviously we see here that he's still alive and that he he dies here in chapter 2. What we see in these verses uh, is just a change from the well-established spiritual leadership uh, to what amounts to a leadership vacuum. Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim, and that's why they buried him in the hill country of Ephraim. And he was clearly the chosen and appointed successor to Moses. The elders that are referred to here are either some of the elders who were appointed by Moses in Numbers chapter 11, or perhaps their successors. Uh, 
See, what we have here is leadership with very clear ties to Moses dying out, and nobody is in any kind of position to replace them. There's no succession plan for for each of these tribes. You go from having all of the tribes pretty much together and having clear lines of leadership to everyone being scattered all over the promised land and not necessarily having clear leaders in each tribe or at least not spiritual leaders with ties to Moses. In that leadership vacuum, something very devastating happens to the people of God, which I think maybe has some parallels to what we see in our time today. The older generation had seen all the things that God had done in the wilderness. The younger generation did not have the same experience and relationship. And we know that this is about relationship and not just about knowledge, because uh, at the end of verse 10, when it says another generation Uh, arose after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done, we shouldn't take that to mean that they had never heard the stories or the legends. In fact, as we go along in the book, we're going to see that people did know the stories and the legends. What they did not have was personal experience. So they knew who the Lord was. They knew the stories about what he had done from their fathers, but they did not have personal stories of what God had done for them and their own interaction with God. This is really a failure of discipleship, as many have pointed out. But what I want to make clear here is that discipleship is not merely communicating information. Because they had the information. They knew the stories. What discipleship is, is encouraging and giving context to experience. So that the experience of one person leads to very similar experiences in another person's life. That's discipleship. That is why God's instruction to the people all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy is so important. And this will be very familiar to you. Deuteronomy 11, chapter 18. This is God telling the people, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as reminders on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, speaking about them when you sit at home. And when you talk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. This is God's instruction. Notice he doesn't say, hey, take your kids to church so the kids pastor can tell them Bible stories. Notice he doesn't say, tell your kids about me only when you're engaging in some form of a religious uh, practice in a religious environment. Instead, the depiction here is of everyday common situations that you find yourself in all the time. He's saying, find ways to bring me in to your everyday life in normal situations so that I'm normal, so that the things that uh, people know about me are the things that are part of their everyday life and not just their hyper religious moments. The truth is, sometimes we're very good at being spiritual at spiritual times where the context is more obviously spiritual. But if we can never manage to be spiritual in the mundane moments of life, 
that's when uh, we're really going to see God be real. God can't just be real at church. He needs to be real at home and at work and at school and in the car and in just normal conversations of life. So what follows here is the consequences of a society that does not truly know God and have experience with God. It doesn't mean that every single person in Israel had no personal relationship or faithfulness or commitment to God. And I think we have to avoid these kinds of generalizations. In this book, it's going to say that the people did evil and it's going to say the people served God. We should never interpret that to mean that every single person in every tribe throughout all of Israel didn't follow God or that every single person in every tribe followed God. What it's doing is it's describing the general trend, the dominant theme in a society as a whole and not necessarily describing the experience of every single person. So right here, uh, we have an overview of what's going to happen in the entire rest of the book. Now, remember I told you in the introduction, chapter one and chapter two are both introductions to the book. So now the writer here in chapter two is going to just come out and tell us the pattern that's going to play out in the rest of the book. So we'll pick it up. Chapter two, verse 11. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of, in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They infuriated the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshiped Baal and the Ashtoreth. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them, and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. The cycle that we first described in chapter 1 and in, in, in uh, the introduction uh, is played out here. First, the people do evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, we're not told exactly what that evil is, but we can assume safely that it's associated with the worship of other gods. Notice that the writer says that they worshiped the Baals. Now, we say Baals in America. That's very uh, how we uh, understand the pronunciation of that word. It's probably more Baal, okay? So they worshiped Baals. Notice it's plural. I'm going to stick with Baal just because it's probably easier for me. But Baal is an ancient northeastern north eastern, uh, storm god, and he was associated with vegetation and crops. So many of the cultures worshipped their own version of a storm god. So the writer of Judges clumps them all together as Baals, even though as you read through the Old Testament, you will find that they have various names, particularly uh, in this book in chapter 9, we're, we're introduced to Baal Bereth. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, you'll read about Baal Peor, Baal Gad, uh, Baal Zebub, Baal Zebul. Much later in Israel's history uh, with uh, Jezebel, she worshiped Baal Melkart, 
which was the Phoenician version of Baal. So sometimes the Bible doesn't tell us exactly which Baal is being referred to, but you can probably figure it out by whatever culture the people are having to deal with in the story. So Baal is just a god or supposed god that provides rain and prosperity. The writer also mentions Astareth, which is the plural form for the goddess Astart, who is over war and fertility. She was Baal's sexual partner. And again, it's plural here because each of these cultures uh, represented her slightly differently. But she is often associated with fertility, which is why many of the practices associated with her worship were sexual. So when God's people participated in these things, it's, it's infuriating to him. And God felt it as though the people were abandoning him. He says, you've abandoned the Lord. As a result, they suffered economically and militarily because sin brings suffering. That's not to say that all suffering is the result of your own personal sin. That, that's just not the case, uh, or at least not directly. But in general, the people suffered greatly in the land that was promised to them as a direct result of their refusal to be obedient to all that God had commanded them to do and their participation in worship, or at the very least, their paying respect to. That's the, the indication here of bowing down to. Sometimes maybe you don't, uh, you don't participate directly, but you kind of pay homage to it. You kind of allow it. You tolerate it. You, know, you, you say it's okay. That's the cycle, but that's just half the cycle. The rest is picked up in verse 16. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their fathers who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers did. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judges died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers going after other gods to worship and bow down to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. The Lord's anger burned against Israel and he declared, because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their fathers and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test Israel and to see whether they would keep the Lord's way by walking in it as their fathers had. The Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. So here's the last part of the cycle. God raises up judges. Uh, he's with the judge. He addresses the suffering of their people. But ultimately, the people are going to slide back. And it's almost as if as long as they had really good leadership in the land, they did better. But when they, that good leadership died out or when they had no leadership at all, well, they don't do as good. So God's response is to allow this pattern to repeat. And ultimately, the people who are left in the land uh, and their gods represent a huge test. Now, I've told people this before, that sometimes we give ourselves too much credit for the sins we have not committed. In reality, 
There are certain sins we have not committed only because we haven't had a good opportunity to do so just yet. But the fact that all these other gods and all these other people with their practices are still around only gave Israel an opportunity to show a distinction between righteousness and unrighteousness. And it gave them an opportunity to choose good or to choose evil. And we know what they chose. All of these stories that we're going to go through in all the rest of the chapters in some way connect back to this pattern. We're going to see aspects of ourselves, aspects of the greater Christian culture in our nation today, but ultimately it's a commentary on our own heart. Here's the takeaway for today. When God was ready to describe the sin of Israel, he used terms like prostituted, whored, harlot, uh, abandoned, depending on your version that you read. These are very strong terms. Uh, They're very, very strong terms, and they're used all throughout the Old Testament. Our temptation is to lessen the blow of our sin by calling it something slightly different. Perhaps what we need to do is to be confronted by the grossness of our sin and see what it really is instead of trying to lessen it. Friends, allow God to open your eyes so that you can really see what sin in your life is really like, what it's really doing to you, what it's really doing to your relationship with God, what it's really doing to those around you, what it's really doing to our churches, and what it's really doing to our nation. Only then can we be truly broken and then receive the strength from God that we need to break the cycle. Well, that's all we have for you today on By the Verse. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and making it through uh, this lengthy chapter. Next time, we're going to be introduced to our first three judges, and I can't wait to walk with you through it on By the Verse.